Genesis 25, verses 1 through 26, and you'll find that on page 19 if you're using the church Bible. And before I do read God's word, let me pray again briefly for us. Father, you have told us that you have set your word even above your name, and our God, you have told us that it's by our receiving the implanted word that we are made wise unto salvation, and so we pray that you would give us grace to read and to to mark and to study and to learn and to digest and to keep your word. We pray that you would show us Jesus Christ. Above all things that we could ask for this morning, Father, is a sight of your Son, that you would remove blindness and everything that obscures us from seeing and from hearing. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand that we might turn and that we might be healed. And so, our God, we pray that you would do a great work of grace through the ministry of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 1. There now, Moses notes, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Asherim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Apha, Apher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. He sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. And there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who bore Hagar the Egyptian. Sarah's servant bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbael, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages, by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havala and Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paran Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayers. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together with her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. 
The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there are always, and I I don't know how much you have thought about this, but there are always those things that God has ordered in this world that we are very familiar with that sometimes cause great problems in people's lives. But for many of us, we never stop and ask the question, why are things the way they are? And why would something like this be a practice if it causes so much problems? And one of the big things that falls into that specific category is the issue of inheritances. I have a friend who is in her 60s, and she has told me the story about how she is grievously estranged from one of her sisters who cut off all the other siblings in order to get the inheritance, which was not even that large, maybe $60,000, and for decades has been estranged over a mere $60,000. There are stories like that that constantly happen. In fact, Jesus gives us a a, a little insight into how the inheritance causes so many problems in people's lives when he is met by those two that come to him and want him to decide who gets the inheritance. Two brothers, they're divided. Tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. You see how the idea of the inheritance can become such a problematic issue, and yet Many of us have never stopped to ask the question, why is there such a thing as an inheritance and the idea of an inheritance even at all in this world? And you say, well, it's just simple. Somebody has to get. Somebody has to get what you have. Well, it's not that simple. The government could get everything that you have. There could have been other arrangements. God could have so ordered it that that there's no such thing as an inheritance passed one generation to another. But God has so ordered the world in which we live, and he has so constructed things in the world in which we live, that the inheritance plays a central place in biblical teaching, and the inheritance and the blessings that accompany the inheritance, especially in the patriarchal narrative, play such a specific and important role that the whole idea of redemption and the work of Jesus is built squarely on the idea of the inheritance. Now, we have said already that we have seen the last act of Abraham. Abraham has gone out. He has found a bride for the covenant son. He has seen God's faithfulness. He has acted in faith. And now, as Isaac is about to be the recipient of the inheritance of Abraham and of the covenant blessings of God passed down from Abraham to him, we see now that Abraham is going to die in faith, that as the the narrative transitions to Isaac, as everything moves uh, very briefly, we'll see in a minute, to the covenant son of Abraham, we will see that everything centers on the issue of Abraham's death and the promises of God continuing and the blessings of God being passed down generation by generation by generation through a very specific line and merely by God's grace. Now as we come to consider the blessing of Isaac and as we come to see how the scripture is focusing in in a special way on Isaac, we have to focus on the details surrounding Abraham's death. We're told there that uh, in that four-year period, most likely between Sarah's death and 
And Abraham's death here, Abraham had taken a wife to himself, a woman named Keturah. Now, commentators have spilled an enormous amount of ink trying to explain exactly when this happened. There are commentators that think that she was already Abraham's concubine because the word concubine is used in juxtaposition with the word wife, that, that at some point Abraham took more concubines to himself than just Hagar, even while Sarah lived. There are good theologians that think that Abraham has stumbled here at the end of his life. That's a possibility. John Calvin thinks that's what's happened. And that subsequent to Sarah's death, Abraham has selected one of those concubines and has made her his bride. There are some who think that it is all together after Sarah's death that this is occurring. And while we don't know the precise details, there are even some who think that Keturah is a synonym for Hagar, which doesn't have any footing at all. And trying to make Abraham maybe look more virtuous than the text may be making him look. Whatever the case, we see that Abraham has taken another wife to himself and she has borne him numerous children. That's important because Abraham was childless. All the promises of God given to Abraham were dependent on him having offspring. And for 30 long years, Abraham waited for God to fulfill that promise. And he had taken Hagar to himself, and she had borne him Ishmael. And and then God had raised up Isaac to come from Sarah and Abraham. And it said, in Isaac, your seed will be called. In Isaac, the nations will be blessed. In Isaac, the Redeemer will come. In Isaac, all the hopes of your people and of all those to come will be bound up in Isaac. And having done that, God sent Ishmael away so that Abraham knew it was Isaac and it was only in Isaac and that God's grace and his redemption was going to run exclusively at this point through Isaac. And as that's important, we then have to ask the question why Moses goes to such lengths now as we're coming to the end of Abraham's life to mention that Abraham had other sons. And it's a very interesting chapter because as Abraham is going to die and he's going to be gathered to his people, he's going to enter into that heavenly rest, that heavenly promised land that he had, he had been sojourning toward his whole life as his hopes are going to be fulfilled. You see that what happens is that a number of sons are gathered around Abraham in this chapter. We are told that Abraham has all these sons from Keturah. We are then told when he dies that both Isaac and Ishmael show up at the scene to give their father a proper burial. All the sons of Abraham are present in this section as he dies. And that's important because God is again going to single out Isaac as the recipient of the covenant blessings by his grace at the death of the great man of faith, and the man who had exhibited what it is to live by faith and now to die by faith. Notice that what we're told after that list of the sons that that Abraham and Keturah had together, we are told, notice verse, verse four, it is a seamless transition. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. That is, that is what's being highlighted. Abraham knows he is dying. He is making preparation for his household. He understands the culture. He understands tradition. But more than that, Abraham understands 
what it is for a man of faith to die in faith. And part of that is making sure his house is in order. And part of that is making sure that the next thing he does and the very last thing that he does in his death is an act of faith. Now, I told you at the outset of this sermon that um, there have been many, there have been many, um, there have been many frustrations and tensions and divisions and estrangements that have happened by one parent showing partiality to another parent or siblings fighting over who gets the inheritance. But here, in a special way, God is highlighting just one son of Abraham. Only one son of Abraham is going to get the inheritance. Abraham is acting in faith. John Calvin, actually reflecting on this passage, makes the point that if any of us were to do this and just single out one of our children and give everything that we have to them, it would be a great act of division and it would cause much discord in our homes. We're going to see the issue of partiality play out in the subsequent generations. Isaac's going to have his favorites. Jacob's going to have his favorite. We're going to see how how much harm is done by partiality. But here, Abraham in his death is not showing sinful partiality to Isaac. Abraham is acknowledging what God had said. God had said, in Isaac shall the nations be blessed. Therefore, in Isaac shall the inheritance be given. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it has to occur that this act, the act of the covenant son receiving the covenant blessing, has to occur at the death of the man of faith. It has to occur at the moment when Abraham dies. Abraham couldn't have just given Isaac everything 10 years prior. He couldn't do it at Sarah's death. It happens at the death of Abraham. And in a very real sense, in a very real sense, what we were being told, and I love the way Ligon Duncan puts this, we were being told that the blessing of Abraham did not die with him. It's possible, isn't it? It's possible that God had dealt so graciously with Abraham Abraham was set up as this model of one who has faith, and now all of his hopes are being fulfilled. He is going to glory. His hope was never to get the land of, of Israel. Very interesting, the language, the language used um, of Abraham dying at a good old age, the way the Hebrew very specifically repeats the language of him expiring and dying and dying old at a good old age leads many, many, many theologians to say that this is speaking of Abraham being satisfied in how God had dealt with him. Not, not being able to say, you know what, on my deathbed, I, I, you know, there have been good things, there have been bad things, but overall it's been a pretty good life. It's not, it's not that sort of sentiment. It's acknowledging that Abraham is recognizing that his life, and remember we've seen that his life was one of trial and frustration and difficulty, not knowing where he was going, lots of strife, lots of tension, not having any of the promises of God fulfilled except Isaac, having then to offer Isaac up on the altar, having then to send away his firstborn son, all of the challenges and difficulties. And yet Abraham, at the end of his life, can recognize the goodness and the spiritual blessings of God on him. And in a sense, when it says that he, and the language is used, that he died in a good old age, an old man and full, the language of full of years, is the idea that he was satisfied with how God had dealt with him and that he was now hoping in entering into that heavenly 
resting place. I think when the Bible speaks of Abraham being gathered to his people, it's the first time that phrase is used. It'll be used subsequently of of some of his descendants in the book of Genesis. That is the language of him um, going to glory. That's the language of him entering into that city that had foundations. Abraham is essentially teaching us how to die. The writer of Hebrews says about all the saints and really focuses on Abraham in in many respects, says um, these all died in faith. I was talking to Anna this morning about over the last, I've been here seven years, over the last seven years here, ten years of our marriage, how many people I've seen derail, leave the ministry, people who talked a big talk, going to do great things. They were going to do great things. Um, It's only God's grace that we, any of us, continue on in the faith. But, But many, many, many people never finish well. They never finish well. They never, they run, they talk a big game, but they don't finish well. Abraham, in many, many respects, we're being told, is finishing well. He is crossing the finish line, not happy that he had a really good 401k. I want to emphasize that. This is vital in this chapter. He's not taking his possessions with him. And even his conferring them on Isaac is a spiritual act, not a hoping that what he amassed for himself would somehow continue for all generations. Abraham is dying in faith. He is full. He has seen God's hand of providence, and now he is doing that singular act of faith, and he is blessing the covenant son, and he is saying the blessing continues, God's grace continues, his redemption's continuing, and he is going to fulfill all his promises in you, Isaac. Very interesting. Moses notes that just after we're told about all the sons that he has with Keturah, and then when Ishmael comes back to help bury Abraham at his death, that, that the Bible notes that, that Abraham sent away all those other sons, just like he had sent away Ishmael. And then after we read of the descendants of Ishmael in this chapter, the scriptures bury Ishmael forever. The history of Ishmael and his descendants are buried from the rest of the scriptures. That's it. All the sons of Abraham are being sent away except the son of promise, the covenant son in whom all the redeeming purposes and promises of God are being made. Now, I think that there are loads of typological things going on covenantally in this. I think that all of this is pointing to Jesus Christ. One of the interesting things, I think, is that Isaac becomes the recipient of the covenant promises at the death of Abraham. Abraham must die in order for the promises to be fulfilled. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, is the testator. And in order for the inheritance of God to come to us, the son of Abraham has to die. In order for the covenant blessings to become yours, somebody has to die. In order for the inheritance to become yours, somebody has to die. 
I think that Moses is highlighting that by noting this first time that we read about the inheritance in Scripture. You're going to read about it through the rest of the patriarchal narratives. You're going to read about it through the rest of the book. I never forget as a young Christian reading through Genesis saying, why is the inheritance such a big deal? Why is the inheritance such a big deal? It's a big deal because it's the issue of the gospel. The gospel is pointing to God's everlasting inheritance conferred on us in Jesus, given to us by the death of Jesus. That's, that's the point of this. It's not how to be fair to your children. It's not how to love your children better. Because that's what you want. That's what I want. That's what we want. We want to hear a sermon that's very practical. Here's the practical dimension of this message. Everything in the Bible is about how do I get God's inheritance. That's it. How do I become the heir? Half of the book of Romans is about this. Half of the book of Galatians is about this. Half of what Jesus teaches in the Gospels is centering on how do I become an heir of eternal life? How do I become an heir of all things? Someone has to die. And someone does die. God becomes man and he dies so that the inheritance is guaranteed to all those who are the children of promise, like Isaac. It is pointing forward in every way. Now, as we look at this, and as we consider the inheritance coming to Isaac, we have to secondly consider that it's all by grace. You know, Isaac's one of those interesting figures. Um, I'd never thought of this before, and never observed this. The Bible almost tells us nothing about Isaac. He's overshadowed by his father, and he's overshadowed by his son, and there's very little told about Isaac in the Genesis narrative. You would think the son of promise, the son of Abraham, would have this enormous amount of history. Uh, one writer tells us um, the salient feature of Isaac's life is that he has no salient features. Another writer says he was the ordinary son of an extraordinary father and an ordinary father of an extraordinary son. Isaac is ordinary. There is nothing wonderful about Isaac. Um, we know little of Isaac's character except that he seemed to be meek, tender, quiet, more of a thinker than a doer. He goes with his father. When his father lays the wood on him, he goes to be offered up on the altar. Isaac, um, we are told, mourns the death of his mother. He has a tender heart. He's comforted by his wife after his mother's death. Um, he is bullied by Ishmael and made fun of by Ishmael. He is the sort of character that the world despises. And he's ordinary. He doesn't have his father's boldness. He doesn't have his father's sense of adventure. His father, remember, was picking up the tent and moving, was very industrious, trained all his servants, was, was an explorer in many ways. Isaac, to the best of our ability, stays in Be'er Lahai Roy where his father had dug some wells. He, he just tends the goats and the sheep, and he just carries on with his ordinary life. Um, Isaac is clearly, I think, taught and shown to be a believer. Remember when Rebecca comes back to meet him, we are told um, he is out in the field meditating. He is a spiritually minded, yet a meek, quiet, not very ambitious, not extraordinary in any way whatsoever. And there's nothing about Isaac that makes you think that he deserves the grace of God. 
In fact, I think the ordinariness of Isaac is set out because most of us have very ordinary lives. Most of us live very ordinary lives. Most of us will not be remembered in the annals of church history for the great things we did. Most of us would be just remembered like those names in those long lists in the book of Numbers. God knows who we are. God takes note of his people. God shows the same grace in redeeming his people from their ordinary mundane lives and leaving them in an ordinary mundane life as he does with those who he makes extraordinary and spectacular believers in the eyes of Christians. Isaac is a recipient of God's grace. It is only grace that sets Isaac apart. We know this also because Isaac is a sinner. Isaac in his later years will be very unlike what he was in his early years. His softness will turn to self-indulgence. He will become a man that just lusts after food and wants Esau to go and get him food and doesn't care about keeping his home together, shows partiality to Esau over Jacob. We see that Isaac's life doesn't end on a very high note. But what that shows us is that Isaac is a recipient of grace and that the inheritance that God freely gives is merely by his sovereign grace. Isaac has done nothing whatsoever to merit it. Isaac is ordinary. Many of us are ordinary. The question that Moses seems to be answering for us is, does God bless ordinary and mundane lives? That's the question. I think there is great comfort there. Because many are scrambling after greatness. Many who are not resting in the grace of Jesus Christ are trying to make a name for themselves, are trying to build their empires and their kingdoms. And essentially when we see Isaac, what we see is God saying, you don't have to build yourself a kingdom. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I'll be merciful to those who have adventurous spirits and are zealous and to those who are very ordinary and meek and tepid. I think, however, we also see that Isaac foreshadows characteristics of the greater son of Abraham. His quietness, his patience, his meekness, his gentleness. You know, as I thought about this chapter, I thought about the way Isaiah the prophet um, speaks of the coming redeemer. And it, and it is contrary to everything. It's contrary to what we want. If we're honest, Jesus is contrary to what we want. You may have your heart so gripped by grace, you say, no, I want Jesus. Well, amen. <laughs> but by nature, Jesus is not what you want. You want a good-looking, rich, powerful, praised redeemer. That's what you want. This is why churches pick ministers that fit that mold. And I am none of those. So you have been very gracious to receive me. Um, it's, it's true. Um, Isaiah says there was no form or comeliness. There was no beauty that we should desire him. There is nothing spectacular externally about Jesus. You would see him on the beaten paths of Palestine, and he would look just like the next ordinary individual. Yes, he did spectacular miracles. Yes, he taught spectacular divine truth as God in the flesh. But Jesus was very ordinary. 
And there's something wonderful. Jesus was very meek. It's the only way he ever describes himself. It's the only characteristic besides being the truth. Jesus says, I am meek and gentle in heart. Uh, One pastor says, um, the world needs Isaacs. The church needs Isaacs. I I like that. The church needs Isaacs because they resemble the Savior. They show forth that it's not in all the zeal and excitement and gifts and everything else that we put our stock in. It is in men on whose God's spirit rests, men who exhibit the characteristics of patience and of waiting on the Lord and of letting God be God and of depending on the Lord. And the Lord Jesus, the son of Abraham, is all of those things, even as he comes to do the greatest and most spectacular thing in the history of the universe and redeeming his people from Satan, sin, and death, he does so all along the way in meekness and gentleness. I was struck, uh, um, Russell Moore said uh, a few weeks ago at a conference we were at, um, Jesus is the least decaffeinated person in the scriptures. I really like that. I was like, I'm going to borrow that. The least decaffeinated. Isaac is very much like that. And Isaac is beset by sinful weakness unlike Jesus and needs redemption and needs grace and receives that from the Lord. But I want to also just note that everything that's going on in the blessing of Isaac and coming to Isaac by grace, it's, it's all redemptive in nature. I've been saying this along the way, but here's how it's redemptive. It's not just about the physical inheritance. It's not just about, well, Isaac got all the money, all the possessions, all the servants. That's that. No, that was pointing. That was a picture. Abraham understood you can't take it with you, and that that was just a pointer to what God had promised to do in giving his everlasting inheritance to the nations. And it was dependent. It was dependent. God's blessing and his redemption was dependent on Abraham having offspring and then, by default, on Isaac having offspring. The blessing, the covenant blessing, was absolutely dependent. Isaac gets married at 40, and then we're told he has Jacob and Esau at 60. Now, I'm reading this chapter, and I'm thinking, why highlight these periods? Why highlight the gaps and the waiting? Just like with Abraham. By the way, Isaac's life, this is a rabbit trail and a half, but Isaac's life is a parallel of Abraham's life. We'll get into that more. There's all kinds of parallels in experience. There's famines. Isaac will dig the same wells that his father did. His wife will be barren for a time, just like Sarah was barren. There's sort of all this recapitulation in experience. But, but I think what Moses is doing is showing that the covenant blessing, Abraham giving the inheritance to Isaac, that that blessing is also dependent on Isaac having children, and so God begins to show Isaac how he is blessing him and giving him Jacob and Esau. Now, we're going to see the tensions, the strife. God's electing grace is going to be marvelously magnified in the story of Jacob and Esau. We're going to get into that. But turn over to Genesis chapter 26, verse 12. Now, Isaac has received his father's inheritance. He is now given twin sons, one of whom the promises are going to be carried on by grace and from whom the Redeemer is going to come by God's grace. Um, but then notice, notice this summary statement, because this kind of summarizes God's blessing on Isaac. Notice verse 12. Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more, 
until he had become very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now, the point is not, if you're blessed by God, you're going to amass a lot of wealth. The point is that God is showing that he is placing his spiritual blessings on Isaac. The covenant blessings are resting on Isaac. At this point in human history, there's going to be physical manifestations of that in the prosperity that Isaac, with which Isaac prospered. And that little phrase, the Philistines, who were the noted enemies of God's people, envied Isaac, showed that this was a heart issue. This was not just a wealth and prosperity issue. This was a spiritual issue. God's blessing was spiritual in nature. And it elicited from the enemies of God anger and bitterness because they were not the recipients of God's spiritual blessings. Now, how does this come home to us? Well, as I've already noted, um, the, the rest of the biblical narrative is asking the question, how can I be blessed with Abraham? How can I receive the inheritance of Abraham? Paul will say in Romans 4, chapter 13, the blessing of Abraham was not through the law, but by promise, so that it can be given to the heirs of promise, those who believe, like Abraham, to whom God promised that he would be the heir of the world through the righteousness of faith. So the apostle in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and 4 tell you exactly how you become heir of the covenant promises and the inheritance. God says it is by faith in Jesus, knowing that you need his righteousness, that you don't have your own righteousness, that you're not going to stand on judgment day saying, look at all I did with my life. I wasn't like Isaac, ordinary. I wasn't like Isaac, Lord. I did lots. I was ambitious. I gave a lot of money. It's not going to stand on judgment day. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. You need one who has merited the inheritance. The writer of Hebrews, when he goes to describe Jesus, says, um, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There is another son of Abraham who receives the true inheritance that God promised Abraham. And he merited it by his perfect life and his atoning death and his resurrection from the dead. He became the heir of everything. Jesus could stand and say, all authority in heaven and on earth. A man, think about this, a man just like you, human being, could say, I have been given everything, all authority, all power, all dominion. I have become the heir of everything, and I give it to you freely, by grace, through faith, as you trust me for my righteousness. That's, that's how you become blessed with the covenant sign. That's how that inheritance is promised to you. 
I want to ask you this morning, as you assess your life and your heart and your mind and what you're trusting in and how you think and your ambitions in life and, and what you think about your own impending death and, and all the other things that can flood your minds, and you have to ask yourself those questions, if you had to assess yourself, can you say, I am trusting in the son of Abraham, I am trusting only in his righteousness, I believe that he has merited the inheritance for me, and I believe that he freely gives it to me by grace. That's, by the way, that is the big thought that, that consumes the mind and the hearts of believers. When we're not living in accord with that, just like Abraham at times failed and Isaac at times failed, we, we feel the guilt of our sin. We feel that, that's, that something's wrong. Something's wrong if I'm not living in light of that. If that's not permeating my thoughts, many times it doesn't. There's something wrong. I need to confess sin and I need to have my heart realigned to that. I have no righteousness, no claim to God's inheritance, no claim to eternal life, nothing that I bring to the table. No character, no accomplishments, no zeal, no amount of giving, service, money, nothing that we give to God. Nothing. Nothing. And when we come to terms with that and we say, but in Christ there is fullness, in Christ there is righteousness, in Christ there is everlasting life, in Jesus and what he's done for me, There's everlasting blessing, and the inheritance is mine in Christ. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That is the epicenter of everything God is constantly trying to work in our hearts and minds. If you are, as you assess yourself, not only seeing waywardness, but saying, you know, I don't think that's true of me. I don't like hearing this. You need to come to Jesus because at the end of the day, if you don't, you will be sent away. Just like the sons of Keturah, just like Ishmael, Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness, depart from me. Um, I hope that you will flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will flee to him to be clothed in his righteousness, to know that God has secured everything. And promises to give you everything if you're found in Christ by faith alone, through grace alone. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge all of us our weakness, our frailty, our lack of trusting in your Son alone as we ought to on a moment-by-moment basis. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the greater Son of Abraham. We thank you that you are the heir of all things and that you make us heirs freely by your grace, that one day you will confer all the blessings of God on us because of your death. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would quiet our hearts this morning, that you would realign our minds. We pray, our Father, that you would remind us that you are intent on giving your blessing to us, who you have drawn to your Son by your grace, and that the same grace that called us will lead us to glory. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that for us that you would enlarge our hearts, that you would grant us brokenness over our own pride. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.